for the first time in my life, my mother and father sat me down and explained to me the definition of racism. At the age of 10, I had never heard the word racism. I had no clue what they were talking about. It sounded so abstract because it was not part of my world. I'd already been around the world. I met all kinds of people who didn't look anything like me. And we all got along. Whether we spoke the same language or not, we still got along. We worked together. We played together. We had slumber parties, you know. And so what what my parents were telling me was simply not true. I, You know, my parents had never lied to me before. But on this day in 1968, I knew they were lying. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, our question today, can you ever really change somebody's mind? Especially when that somebody seems so entrenched, so invested in their point of view that they have built an entire lifestyle, identity and community around it. You know, it's no secret to say that we're in the middle of a pretty divisive time right now. There are those who choose to vaccinate and there are those that don't. There are those who want to act on climate change and those that don't. There are those who loudly take to the streets and those who quietly stay at home and disagree digitally. And as always, the sheer rightness of our position just seems kind of obvious. Just as much as the sheer wrongness of our point of view or even our entire existence seems obvious to the other side. We all have our facts. We're all aware of the fake news of everybody else's facts. And for an increasing part, the algorithms of the internet keep us convinced that the entire world is on our side. I feel like this is probably going to be one of the biggest questions of our time. The question of how we stop throwing stones, either physical or verbal, long enough to figure out how we can disagree respectfully. How to dislike what somebody does, says, or stands for with every cell in your body and yet still believe enough in their right to decide, in their right to say it, that we can respectfully hold a space for them to be heard, even if they're deadly wrong. And those last few words couldn't be more true than in the journey of my next guest. Daryl Davis is a musician, a pianist to be exact. He has jammed with the likes of Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, B.B. King, and even Bill Clinton. So when he entered the Silver Dollar Lounge in Frederick, Maryland for a country gig one fateful night in 1983, he had no idea that that night would forever change his life. But more on that later. Fueled by his experiences with racism as a black man and a hunger to understand its roots, he began what has become a lifelong quest to answer one fundamental question. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? That question took him right to the doorway and then the many rallies of the Ku Klux Klan. 
Now, as a brief background for those of you who might not be familiar with the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan was formed in 1865 by a group of Confederate soldiers at the end of the American Civil War. It was an attempt to keep newly emancipated slaves suppressed. Having had several iterations since then, what remains consistent across all chapters of the group is its hatred towards people of colour, on many occasions resulting in assault and sometimes murder. In 2018, so that's 153 years later, a record high of more than 1,000 hate groups, including the KKK, were documented as active in the United States by the Southern Poverty Law Center Civil Rights Group. So it's fair to say that a KKK rally is neither a safe or a welcoming place for Daryl to commit to finding an answer to his question. Over the past 30 years and since that first decision, Daryl has inspired over 200 people to quit the KKK. Through dialogue and as you'll come to hear, a thirst to understand. He was also the first black man to write a book on the topic entitled Clandestine Relationships, A Black Man's Odyssey in the Ku Klux Klan. As a race reconciliator, Daryl is also sent all over the world by the U.S. State Department to speak at various nations on subjects such as conflict resolution and race relations. In this conversation, we take a very raw and honest look at his journey from that bar in Maryland to immersing himself in the world of the KKK, what he learnt, how he has learnt to respond, and what that has to teach us about having deeply difficult conversations. Why he is never offended by what he hears in those conversations, and this one just blew my mind, including how he stays in a place of active respect and curiosity in situations that would bring most people's blood to the boil. Why he always starts with commonality, and he uses some beautiful language here that I'd love you to listen for, essentially beginning any difficult conversation with what he has in common with that other person before he moves into what he has in contrast. Why change never happens in the moment, and I think this one is worth hearing a few times, we will never change somebody's mind in the moment. The intention instead is to flip that and invite them into an exploration, notice that word, not a debate, and then respectfully sow seeds that they can reflect on later when they're in their own space and in their own time. Why self-awareness and courage are muscles that we all have, and only by strengthening and using those muscles can we inspire others to start doing the same, parents and leaders, that one's on us. And finally, why, as someone who considers himself to be, and I quote, just a rock and roll player, Daryl has managed to achieve what some of the largest movements of our time have not, by first deciding to listen. As you dive into this conversation, I'd love you to just have a think about someone in your life right now that you disagree with. It might be quietly or loudly. It might be about something vitally important or just something that feels really important to you. If there was a way to approach that conversation differently, what might it be? Is there a chance that there could be a way of talking about it that could strengthen the relationship rather than break it? And even if you don't change their mind, the seed of curiosity that you might plant could bear fruit for you later on whenever you need to face something difficult together again. Now, I know there are a few in my life and what this conversation has had me realize is that basically I can do a better job and that if I can do a better job of those conversations in my own life, then I stand a chance of doing a better job out there in the world where, let's face it, we all need it right now. In Daryl's words, 
our society can only become one of two things, what we let it become or what we make it become. Now, warning, there are references to and descriptions of acts of violence in this episode, as you would expect, given the topic. As always, I'll leave it with you to decide how best to take care of yourself and the people that you love. If you are looking to take your journey in influence to the next level right now, don't forget to hop on my website or the show notes and download the brand new version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to rapidly increasing your level of influence, either in your career or in your industry. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to make a cup of tea. My newsletter, Influence Insider, also gives one bite-sized tool, strategy, or mindset shift per week, all on the topic of building a more influential life. Once again, hop onto the website, juliemasters.com, to become an insider. On that note, I will leave you to sit back, cycle on, drive safe, and soak up the powerful wisdom and potential that lives in the life experiences and words of Daryl Davis. Welcome to the podcast, Daryl Davis. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm going to kick off our conversation the way that I usually kick off all conversations, and that is to ask you if there's any one particular idea that you have come across recently, it can be new, it can be old, that's having the most influence or impact on you or your thinking right now. Yes. The idea that one person can, can, be, can make an a exponential change because when they impact another, that person then impacts another and a generation and a generation. And I've seen that come full circle, which is why I continue to do the work that I do. So I, you know, a lot of people think, you know, you got to have a team, you have to have numbers. Yeah, all of that is great. There is strength in numbers, but don't uh, underestimate oneself. One person can have a great impact as well. And that just piqued my curiosity a little bit. The time that you've been doing the work that you've been doing, and we're going to jump straight into that. But have you? How have you seen technology impact that? Because you know we've gone from one person making a difference and very much working in their own little silo, to suddenly there's the ability to be able to make drive conversations at scale much much faster. Have you seen that impact the work that you do? I've seen technology just put it out there to to greater numbers of people, you know, with, you know, through the internet and things like that, because before it all used to be word of mouth. And now, you know, I might be walking through an airport and people I don't even know are approaching me because they've seen something that I've done or heard me on someone's uh, interview. And, uh, you know, they've been impacted by it and they have shared it with their family, etc. So, you know, technology is a good thing. I mean, it can be bittersweet too, just like like fire, for example. If you're if you're cold, I can come heat your house with fire. If I'm angry with you, I can come burn your house down with fire. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. And put in the right hands, it can be very, very powerful. Put in, put in the wrong hands, it can be very, very dangerous. Now, I want to just, I want to go back. We're going to go through your journey, but I want to go back. Your parents were U.S. Foreign Service officers. That is correct. And I know you, you've mentioned before that that helped shape your perspectives of different cultures of the world, of diversity. Can you talk a little bit about, about how that set you up for the work that you went on to do? Absolutely. You know, I'm age 63, and I first started traveling overseas at the age of three with my mother and father. I'm an only child. And as you said, my parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up as an American embassy brat. Uh, I did kindergarten 
first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade in various countries. And the schools that I attended over there were multicultural international schools. So my classmates were from Nigeria, Italy, Germany, Japan, Russia, France, Australia, anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all of their children attended the same school. My first exposure to school was this this multicultural environment. Um, Even the term multicultural did not exist back then. To me, it was just the norm. So what I saw the first time at school was this United Nations of little kids. So that became my baseline. And whenever I would return back home here to my own country, the United States, at the end of my father's two-year assignment, I would either be in black schools or black and white schools, meaning the still segregated or the newly integrated, because there was not the amount of diversity in my classrooms then in the 1960s that we that I had overseas or that we had or that we have today. Today we have that. But uh, but back then it, it did not exist here in this country. So literally, Julie, when I was overseas, I was living about 10 years into the future because that multicultural environment had yet to come here. So I was already being prepared for something at the time. I mean, of course I didn't I had no idea, you know, what. <laughs> So yes, that was a stepping stone. And that really struck me how much that would have wired you and prepared you for, for what was to come. You know, and, and, and when I hear people around here say, you know, you know, we need segregation or we need, you know, you know, Jews should have their own schools and their own neighborhoods and blacks should have theirs and we should have ours and so forth and so on, because it doesn't work. You know, people try to live together. Well, obviously these people have not have not traveled. I know it works. I've been there. I've been there, done that. And that's what I try to share with people over here, because, you know, unfortunately, most Americans do not travel, you know, and, and when they do travel, it's not very far from their home. It might be, you know, down to Florida to the beach or something like that. But, um, you know, they don't. Europeans, they're always traveling. You know, they call it holiday. I'm going on holiday. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we we call it vacation. And when we go on vacation, it's it's, it's never for more than two weeks, usually a week. But these Europeans, I tell you what, they go on holiday for a month or more than a month. And they're always going different places which gives them a broader perspective. And so I was able to do that through my father's job. I was being exposed to many, many different things. And it doesn't make me better than anybody else. It simply gives me a broader perspective. And to show you how much it impacted me would be like, you know, when you're a little kid, you think everybody does what you do. Now, in my in my circles overseas, uh, most of my fellow Americans were doing that, as were the foreign kids, because their parents were diplomats as well. So they're traveling a lot. But when I would come back home and I would be sitting in my classroom uh, in elementary school or whatever, and we would be doing uh, world history or geography, studying the pyramids, the Berlin Wall, the Eiffel Tower, the Mona Lisa, all these things. I've been to all those things. I've been inside the Sphinx. I've climbed inside the pyramids. I've touched the uh, Berlin Wall. I've been up in the Eiffel Tower. I stood five feet from the Mona Lisa in the Louvre Museum before they, they covered it with, that, with the, that glass enclosure or whatever, you know? Um, and then I realized that most of the people sitting around me here in my own country, the closest they would ever get to those things would be the pictures in our textbooks because they did not do that traveling. And when they would find, you know, I lived in Africa, I lived in Europe and different places. 
when they would find out I, I just come back from Africa or something, first thing they would ask me is, did you see Tarzan? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, that's their perception. And what I've come to realize is that one's perception is one's reality. Whether it's real or not, it is their reality. And you cannot change somebody's reality. Uh, they have to change it themselves. And the, the biggest mistake that we make is attacking somebody else's reality. If you want their reality to change, don't go after their reality. Give them a better perspective. Give them, offer them a better perception. And if they resonate with your perception, they will change their own reality. The other thing that struck me, I mean, there was what you were wired for, what you were being wired for by that experience, but there was what you were not being wired for as well. And you had said that you didn't even know the word racism at that point. You had never come across it. And all that changed in 1968 at a Cub Scout parade. Can you tell that story? Sure. We had just returned back to the States from overseas. Uh, 1968, I was 10 years of age. And we were in Belmont, Massachusetts, a suburb of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And I was one of two black children in the entire school, myself in the fourth grade and a little black girl in second grade. So, you know, I never really had any, any dealings with her because I, I was a big, bad fourth grader. I didn't associate with the underclass, right? <laughs> so, you know, of course, my, my friends are fourth and fifth graders. Consequently, they all were white. And the only time I would see her would be like at lunchtime in the cafeteria or recess. So my fourth and uh, fifth grade friends, some of my guy friends, were members of the Cub Scouts. And they invited me to join in 1968. So it sounded like fun. You get to go camping and tie knots and things. So I joined the Cub Scouts. And we had a parade from Lexington to Concord, Massachusetts, which is right next door to Belmont. And, of course, the Lexington to Concord route is the route that uh, that Paul Revere rode during the Revolutionary War. People were yelling, you know, the British are coming, the British are coming. So we were commemorating this famous ride. It was the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, Cub Scouts, Brownies, 4-H Club, and other organizations. I was the only black participant in this thing. The streets were blocked off. The sidewalks were lined with white people who were waving and cheering and having, smiling, having a good time. And so we, we kept on marching, and we got to a certain point in this parade route when suddenly I was getting hit with uh, bottles and soda pop cans and just small pebbles and just debris from the street by a small group of white spectators on my right on the sidewalk mixed in with the larger crowd. And because I had no precedent for this type of uh, behavior, my first thought was, oh, these people over here, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was, you know? It wasn't until my scout leaders, my den mother, my cub master, my troop leader, who all were white, they came running and they covered over me with their own bodies and shielded me. And that I realized I am the only scout giving this kind of protection. So now I'm questioning what did I do? I'm blaming myself for these people attacking me. I didn't know what I had done. I didn't say anything to anybody. You know, I, I didn't think I did anything wrong. But there, because there was no reason for people to throw things at me, I must have done something. And I kept saying to them, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Why, why are they doing this to me? Why? All they would do is, you know, shush me and rush me along, telling me, just keep moving, keep moving. Everything will be okay. Just keep moving. Well, they never answered my question as to what was going on. So I, I'm, I'm clueless. And now I was new. I was new there. So as a 10-year-old, if you have a question, 
you must have an answer. And if somebody does not give you an answer, you begin to, to manufacture your own answers. I'm thinking, well, is it because I'm new? Maybe they're testing me out. I'm the new kid on the block. I had every excuse but the right one because I had no basis for this behavior. At the end of the parade, I went back home. My mother and father, who were not in attendance, they're putting uh, alcohol and Band-Aids on me, getting me cleaned up, and asking me, how did you fall down and get all scraped up? I told them I did not fall down. I told them precisely what had happened. For the first time in my life, my mother and father sat me down and explained to me the definition of racism. At the age of 10, I had never heard the word racism. I had no clue what they were talking about. It sounded so abstract because it was not part of my world. I'd already been around the world. I met all kinds of people who didn't look anything like me. And we all got along. Whether we spoke the same language or not, we still got along. We worked together. We played together. We had slumber parties, you know. And so what, what my parents were telling me was simply not true. I, you know, my parents had never lied to me before. But on this day in 1968, I knew they were lying. I didn't know why, but, but they were not telling me the truth. Because this, this is ludicrous. My 10-year-old brain could not process what they were saying. Because I'd already had plenty of experiences with people who looked just like the ones on the sidewalk. The ones on the sidewalk looked just like my friends at school or their parents, or overseas, my fellow Americans at the embassy, or my little French friends, my Swedish or Danish or Norwegian friends, or Czechoslovakian friends. So it couldn't have anything to do with the colored skin. That's ridiculous. So I didn't believe them. Well, a month and a half to two months later, that same year, 1968, on April the 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And every major city in this country, including nearby Boston, where I was, where I am right now, Washington, D.C., uh, my hometown, Chicago, Illinois, every major city in this country burned to the ground in the name of this new word that I had learned, racism. And so now I understood that this phenomenon does exist, but I did not understand why. Okay, so racism exists, but why are people racist? I didn't understand that. And so I formed a question in my mind at that age, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 53 years, I have been looking for the answer to that question. And from that point, I know that music became your profession. Like music was, music was your love. You played piano for Chuck Berry on and off for 32 years. I mean, that's a distinguished music career. So that was your profession and your love, but you said that your obsession at that point, after that point became race relations. Why? What, what were you hoping to understand by throwing yourself in to that topic? How is it? I'm an American and yet I'm treated better by non-Americans, even white non-Americans, than I'm treated by my own fellow countrymen. Something's not right here. I need to find out more about this. And I've come to realize that our society, our country, can only become one of two things. One, it can become that which we sit back and watch it become, or it can become two, that which we stand up and make it become. So we all have to ask ourselves, a question. It's a personal question for each one of us. And the question is, do I want to sit back and see what my country becomes? Or do I want to stand up 
and make my country become what I want to see. And I chose option number two, the latter. And when you were, when you were doing that research and you're throwing yourself into that topic, what, what interested me was the diversity of groups that you looked at. You didn't just look at groups that were related to the experiences that you were having. And as you said, you know, the death of Martin Luther King and the, the, the riots that happened afterwards, you looked at all kinds of groups. You were obviously looking for a thread there. Am I right in that assumption? You are right in, in that because, I mean, nobody has a monopoly on that type of, um, of behavior or ideology. You know, you, you can find it full circle in all groups. But the common thread, you know, that, I'm, you know, that I was finding was lack of exposure or ignorance, lack of education and ignorance. And, you know, what I've come to realize, and I can give you examples of it time and time again, is... Um, the ignorance, if not addressed, leads to fear, because we fear those things of which we are ignorant, those things of which we don't understand. And I'm not using the term ignorance in a derogatory connotation, just as an unaware connotation, right? So we, we fear those things of which we're ignorant. Ignorance leads to fear. If you reach that fear point and you don't have that addressed, that fear begins to accumulate and escalate. And that leads to hatred, because we hate the things that frighten us. And if, if you don't address the hatred, the hatred begins to boil. And that leads to anger, which escalates into destruction. We want to destroy the things that we hate, because they frighten us. But guess what? At the end of the day, they may have been harmless, and we were simply ignorant. And, you know, and that's universal, I found, whether you're dealing with children or adults. Like you know, I, I speak at colleges, universities, and corporations all over the country and around the world. I also speak at schools, at middle schools, high schools, whatever. You know, little kids. Of course, I tone it down when I'm talking with them. But uh, I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm talking to an elementary school, and there are you know these little rows of little desks and chairs and little kids sitting there, and we're just talking, talking, and and then suddenly I will jump and I'll point at somebody in the front row, point down towards your feet. I said, hey, hey, there's a snake under your chair. You know, and just at my suggestion and my motions, not only does a, does a kid in the front row, but everybody five rows back screams and throws their feet up in the air. Because there's a snake under the front chair, the person in the back row throws their feet up in the air too. Just, just at that suggestion, right? A psychological image. And then they realize, and they're screaming, and so they realize that, you know, that there's no snake under the chair. And so I say to them, okay, you know, and they all start laughing. And I say, well, why, why, why were you all screaming about, you know, about this? And, and you get all these answers. I hate snakes. You know, um, you know, I, you know, I'm afraid of snakes. All this, well, there, you know, there's your hate. There's your fear. Well, why do you hate snakes? Why are you afraid of snakes? Well, they're slimy. You know, they're poisonous. Well, there's your ignorance. If you ever touched a snake before, it's not slimy, it's dry. And not all snakes are poisonous. So there's your ignorance. So you have the ignorance, the fear, and the hate. And so then you say to them, I say to them, okay, well, obviously there's no snake under your chair. I'll just make a joke. But let's just say there really was a snake under your chair. What would you want me to do? You know what they all say? Kill it. There's your destruction. And these are little kids who haven't even lived life to the fullest yet. You know, it's such a big part in what you're saying there about that exposure piece, you know, to just thinking from a parental hat now with a parental hat on just exposing our children 
to a wide diversity of people and cultures and animals, obviously, just more and more things so that they can wire themselves to be able to integrate all kinds of experiences, all kinds of human beings, all kinds of conversations. That was just, that's me sitting here just making a quiet commitment to myself to take my children to the zoo. To, to the zoo. <laughs> I'm not a big believer in zoos. I'm trying to think of an alternative here. You, you were educating yourself. And as I said, it struck me as so beautiful that your mind took you to not only educate yourself about white supremacist groups, but black supremacist groups, um, anti-Semitism, Nazis, you just threw yourself into all of it while you were also playing music at the same time. And those two things came together really quite incredibly at a night in a bar, um, which was in Frederick, Maryland, I think. Can you tell that story? Because that feels like it was the beginnings for you of this journey. Country music had made a comeback. You know, it, had, it had kind of fallen off the airwaves as mainstream music. But a movie had come out uh, called Urban Cowboy with uh, John Travolta. And it had this mechanical bull and these lion dances. And it was a very popular movie. And so country music had made a resurgence. And all the bars and clubs that were playing disco and Top 40 and whatever else, they switched their format to country. So, you know, if you want to work full time playing music... You had to play what was popular. And so I joined a country band. And I like country music. Co- you know, country music and blues is the same music. It's the same three chords in both genres of music. So I joined this country band. I was the only black guy in the band. And usually uh, the only black person where we would play. And the band was established in the area in Maryland where I live. And they had played this place before called the Silver Dollar Lounge as you pointed out, in a town called Frederick, Maryland, which is about an hour and 20 minutes outside of Washington, D.C., and kind of a rural town. And uh, the, the Silver Dollar Lounge had a reputation. It was known as an all-white bar, all-white lounge. There were no signs that said, you know, white only, but you knew. And uh, black people were not welcome. So they didn't go there unless they happened to stumble in there by accident or something. But they stumble right back out real quick. So, you know, you can feel it. And, um, you know, when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and alcohol is being served, it is not a good combination. We had just finished our first set and we're taking a break. And I'm following the band to the band table. They're all ahead of me. And I felt somebody come up from behind me and put their arm across my shoulder. Now, I see the whole band in front of me. And I don't know anybody in this Silver Dollar Lounge. So I'm turning around to see who's touching me. And it was this white gentleman, maybe 15, 18, 19 years older than me. Big smile on his face. And he says, man, I sure like your all's music. And I said, thank you. And I shook his hand. And he points at the stage. And he says, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you. Where'd you come from? And I said, well, yeah, they played here before, but this is my first time. I just joined the band a couple months ago. He goes, man, I sure like your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Now, this was not offensive to me, but because uh, you know, I think it was complimentary it was coming from him. But uh, I, I was baffled as to how this guy who's older than me did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's style of piano playing. And I said, well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned to play that way? He says, what are you talking about? I said, well, he got it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rock and roll, rockabilly, 
comes from. Oh, no, 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 no. Jerry Lee invented that. I ain't never seen no black man play like that, except for you. And I assured him, you know, what I was telling him was true. I said, look, man, I said, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a good friend of mine. He's told me himself. He didn't believe that I knew him. But he was so fascinated with me, he wanted me to come back to his table and let him buy me a drink. Now, I don't drink, but I went back to his table. I had a cranberry juice. He pays the waitress. He takes his glass and tinks my glass and cheers me. And then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. Now I'm completely mystified. Like, how can this be? You know, given my background, by this age, I have sat down with thousands of white people and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation, or anybody else. I could not understand how this guy had never done that. And so innocently, I asked him, I said, why? And he did not answer. He looked down at the tabletop. And I said, why? And his buddy elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him. I said, tell me. And he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I just started laughing and laughing because I thought it was funny. I knew the guy was joking. I mean, I know a lot about the Klan. I already knew a lot about the Klan because I was trying to learn everything I could about racism ever since I was a kid. You ended up as part of that journey, attending Klan rallies, like showing up, turning up and attending Klan rallies. And when I was... When I sat with that, I mean, there's there's the bravery of that. It's obviously incredibly brave. I don't know if it felt brave to you at the time, but it also felt from you a very intentional thing to do. What what did you do when you got there? What was your plan? I mean, there are limits to what I will do, like you know. But I believe in trying to have as much firsthand experience as you can. I I could have written ten books on the Klan and never gone to a Klan rally. I mean, it's like you know, people write books on. Adolf Hitler, or write books on Christopher Columbus. Those people are long dead and gone, but there's enough material out there on the internet or in the library that you can go and research it and write your own book. But it's important to point out here, I think, that you weren't going to provoke. Your intention wasn't to provoke, I don't believe. It feels like your- no, it was to learn. Yeah, your intention was to learn. So you would show up, you would ask questions, and something that you said is that you were never offended by the answers. And that isn't, you never showed that you were offended. So how, how, how can you not be offended? You know who you are. You cannot let somebody who, who has just seen you for the first time and has, has only been in your presence for five minutes dictate who you are. I know who I am. For example, when, you know, when I would interview these people, these clan leaders, whatever, they're sitting right across the table from me. And, you know, I'm asking my, my question, how can you hate me? You don't even know me. And I get answers like, well, Mr. Davis, you know, black people are prone to crime. And this is evidenced by the fact that there are more black people in prison than white people. Now, what the man is saying is true. In this country, there are more blacks in prison than whites. And we're not nearly as much of the population as white people are in this country. We're only like 12%. But there are more black people in prison than whites. So he's looking at the data. And the data is accurate, but he's not looking at the at, at the reason why are there more black people in prison. Uh, if he if he bothered to look into it, he might find that a lot of it is due to the imbalance in the American judicial system that puts black people in prison and imposes longer sentences than it does for white people committing the same crime. That's why so many states have put a moratorium on the death sentence. Uh, because uh, black people were being sentenced to death, where white people who did the same thing uh, were getting life with parole or life without parole. 
you know? So they said, you know, we want to do, you know, we, we have to conduct a study and find out why this is happening. You don't need to conduct any study. We know why it's happening. And, and, and white people in this country have been studying us for 400 years. If they haven't learned anything in 400 years, they're not going to learn anything now. You know what I'm saying? Now, is what he is saying offensive? Absolutely. It is offensive. But am I offended? Absolutely not. Why? Because like I said, this man doesn't know me. He just walked in my room and sat down and we're having a conversation. But yet he's defining me. Why should I be offended by something that's not true? You know, I know who I am. If my mother and father told me, Daryl, you know, we think you're prone to crime. You know, you, you're you're kind of shady and, and, and you're lazy. You know, you don't do any work. And we think you're dumb. Maybe I would believe them because they, they, they brought me into this world. They raised me. But not somebody I just met five minutes ago. And he's making all his his assumptions based on my skin color. You know, we got to learn how to keep our ego behind us and not let somebody else define who we are. We can listen to them and let them, you know, spew it off. But we know who we are. And if you and if you don't know who you are, you have no business going into that room because that person in that room is going to tell you who you are. If you don't already know, you might believe them when you walk out. So, you know, you, you got to know who you are. You know, I sat and I watched, you sent me through some incredible videos and I watched all of them and I watched some of them with my husband. He just came and sat on the sofa next to me and he, he was still there half an hour, half an hour later watching. And he, I said to him, what, what strikes you from what you've just seen? And, and he said, willingness. He said, it strikes me that those people were willing, those individuals were willing to come to the table to have the discussion in the first place. I wouldn't have imagined the willingness would have been there. Was the willingness always there? Is there a key that you have found to inviting people into a conversation where they will be willing? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we go back to to my preparatory steps as a little kid traveling around the world. And, you know, like, like as, as you pointed out, I'm always looking for different threads and how they tie together. And what I have found is this. I have been to 57 countries on six continents. I have performed in 49 of our 50 states. No matter how far I go from my home or my country, whether it's right next door to Canada or to Mexico or across the pond halfway around the world, no matter how different the people I encounter may be, they don't look like me, they don't speak my language, they don't worship as I do or whatnot. No matter how different they may be, when I come back home, I have always concluded that every single person I encountered is a human being. And the, and the threads that we all have in common are come down to about five basic core values that, that we all as human beings want. We all want to be loved. We all want to be respected. We want to be heard. That's very important because we all feel we have something to say. We all want to be treated fairly. And we all want the same things for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And if we learn to keep those, those five core values at the forefront of our minds, when we find ourselves in a society or a culture in which we are unfamiliar, I can guarantee that our navigation with that culture or society will be much more positive and much more smooth, you know? And so 
I've done that because, you know, when, when these people walk into a room, a white supremacist walks into a room and sees me, he already has, you know, an idea that I'm inferior. And so immediately, he's a, he's a supremacist. So he must, you know, immediately establish his position. It's just like, you know, if you're out walking your dog and there's another dog on the sidewalk, you know, one has to establish who's the alpha dog, right? And that's their mentality too. As a supremacist, in order to be supreme or superior, something must be inferior. You have to have the, you know, yeah, exactly. So he has to let me know where I stand and where he stands, make that positioning. So his, 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 um, his temperature goes up, as does his wall. You know, he's ready to block me out, right? And in, what I, my job is to lower his wall, lower his temperature. Because when he sees me, he's radiating vitriol. He's radiating hate, whether he's spewing it or just feeling it. Um, in order for me to bring that wall down, I have to employ those values. I, I allow him to be heard. I mean, is there any skin off my back for this guy to tell me I'm a criminal and I'm lazy and I'm dumb? No. I know who I am. And, and furthermore, I know that this guy barely made it out of high school. I have a college degree. He, he's never been outside the country. I've been all around the world. You know, I'm, I know I have more education in this little fingernail than he and his whole clan put together. But if I throw that in his face, his walls going to go right back up. You know, so I just want to lower the temperature, let his wall come down. So I let him get it all out. I allow him to be heard. And I give him that respect. Understand, I am not respecting what he's saying. I'm not a criminal. I don't respect him calling me a criminal or that I'm lazy or that I'm, I have a small brain or whatever. I'm respecting his right to say it. I'm not respecting the content but I'm respecting his right to say it. So by doing that, um, his wall is coming down and, and the temperature is coming down. And after he spews out all this vitriol, then he feels compelled to hear what I have to say because he's so accustomed to fighting. Because, you know, when you tell some black person they're dumb and they're stupid and they're criminal, they're going to push back or most people will, or you insult some Jewish person, they're going to push back. He's used to that. He is an expert at pushing those buttons to cause that tension. That's what he does all day long. Because they, what do they do? They practice hating. You know, we don't practice hating. So they're the experts at practicing that. They know what buttons to push and get you all riled up, right? And I'm not getting riled up. So he's like wondering, What's, what the heck is wrong with this black person? <laughs> you know, and now he wants to know. And so his temperature is down, and by the time he has spewed all this, he feels compelled to reciprocate. I've allowed him to be heard. I've sat there respectfully listening to him. Now he's curious. So now he wants to hear what I have to say. And you cannot influence or impact anybody when that wall is up. It's like hitting a brick wall. Let the wall come down, and then now it's my turn to speak. Here's the strategy. I could go on the offense. I could attack him, and I would be 100% right. I could say, no, you are the criminal. You are the one hanging black men from trees and bombing black churches and dragging black men behind pickup trucks. I would be 100% correct. 
because the, because the Klan has a history of that kind of uh, behavior and, uh, and atrocities. But if I went on the attack, what would happen? The wall would go back up. So rather than go on the offense, I go on the defense. And I say, listen, I hear what you're saying. However, I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I don't have a criminal record. My mother and father didn't have a criminal record. Um, as, as far as my SAT scores, now see, I know he didn't go to college, but I'm not going to throw that in his face. I'm going to defend myself. I say, as far as my SAT scores, my, my SAT scores were good enough to get me into college. I have a bachelor's degree. My mother and father both had master's degrees. My father was working on his PhD. So that lets him, without attacking him and his education, I'm defending mine and my parents, letting him know that, that we have more education than he does without attacking him. And so I have not attacked him, therefore the wall stays down. And then, and then here's what happens. And Julie, I've seen this time and time and time again, like we all do. At the end of the day, before we go to bed, we reflect upon what we did during the day. And so when he gets home, nothing changes right there in the room. But when he gets home, he reflects on, on what transpired during the day. He's like, damn, you know, I just had a three-hour conversation with a black man. You know, and we didn't come to physical blows because that's what he's used to. And, and what that Daryl guy said, you know, it, it makes sense. Oh, but he's black. But, but what he said what was true. Oh, but he's black. So they're having a cognitive dissonance where he knows you know, what he heard from me was true. But he doesn't want to believe the truth came from a black person. So it's a struggle. So now he's at a dilemma. What does he do? Does he, does he um, accept the truth because he knows it to be true, even though it came from a black man? Because if he accepts it, then he has to change his ideology and go that way and believe the truth? Or does he consider that I'm black and continue believing a lie, knowing that it's a lie? So that's what he struggles with. And ultimately, more of them have chosen to follow the direction of the truth, the path of the truth. And that's how I've ended up with their robes and hoods, by not attacking them, but by defending myself. And the only way that can happen is when you've lowered their wall. Because if you try to impart that information while the wall is up, they're not going to hear it. It's got to be down. There's, there's something really important in what you just said. There was a lot of important things, but what really struck me is that often we, we're very impatient. We expect to make an impact in the moment, right? Like we're having, we jump in, we counter, we, you know, we attack, we defend, we attack. And then what we're hoping for is this moment where someone goes, hang on, you are absolutely right. And what I've heard you say, and you just said it then, I've heard you say time and time again is it's, it doesn't work like that. It's a seed that you plant and usually at nighttime when someone's reflecting on what you've said, that's when it starts to sink in. But expecting change in the moment is going to lead to, as you've said, temperatures getting raised when we don't get it. It's like dieting. You know, you, you, you know if you put on 50, 50 more pounds you know, than you should have, there's nothing you can do that's going to make it disappear by tomorrow morning. There's no pill you can take, no surgery you can have. You know, you've got to – it took a while to put it on. It's going to take a while to get it off. You know, people not, are not born racist. They acquire it, and, and it, they become saturated with it, whether it's from their environment or their parents keep hammering it into them or whatever. 
One of, one of the ways that I have heard that you bring people to the table is, which I think is beautiful, is you never invite people to a debate. And that seems to be quite an important point here and speaks to the guidance that you were just giving. You don't invite people to a debate. What do you do? Invite them to have a conversation where everything is not, you know, yes, you, you are going to debate in a sense because, you know, you're going to have a, an opposing point of view, which is fine, but don't call it a debate. Because, you know, when you say the word debate, uh, it causes the temperature to go. You know, we're ready to, you know, you know, go to task here. Um, let's just have a conversation. Keep it, you know, keep it as a conversation, and, and we can express differing opinions. But psychologically, it, it has a different feel than, uh, you know, on, on on the brain. I think than the word debate. And you're also respecting somebody's intelligence, then, which sets a whole different tone. There's a, there's a particular story that I wanted to ask you to tell, and that was a, about a rally in Charlottesville and what happened after that rally, which I think just beautifully sums up everything we've talked about now, about the, the type of conversation and relationship that is possible when you invite people to the table. Charlottesville happened, as a matter of fact, it was exactly four years ago today, August 12th, 2017, was the, was the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, a large white supremacist rally. Now, I happen to know all those people who put together that rally. I know them personally. I've sat down and had dinner with each of them and talked. They've been in my home. I've been in some of their homes. Um, one of them is now out of it, and he works with me. We work together, you know, de-radicalizing people. Yeah. But uh, anyway, um, so all these different groups. Now, let's, let's understand what Charlottesville was about, what the media doesn't really tell you. According to the media, and, and what most people think was all these right-wing groups are coming together, unite the right, to um, protest the removal of uh, some Confederate statues in Charlottesville, uh, in particular the Robert E. Lee statue, Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Now, while there were some people who were there uh, to protest that, um, the real reason behind that rally was to initiate, it was, it was ground zero to test the ground for what the white supremacists have been looking for for a long time, the race war. They wanted to see how it, how it would, would go down. Uh, Charlottesville was a soft target. Um, Charlottesville police are like uh, mall security. You know, I hate to put it that way, but that's what they are. Uh, Keystone, Keystone cops, uh, you know, you know play, play security guards. Um, it's not like the NYPD, the, you know, the New York police or Los Angeles police or Washington DC police that are trained in riots and protests every day, every day something is going on in New York city or Washington DC, right? Um, that does not happen in Charlottesville. So I'm, I'm not faulting them. I'm just saying, you know, their level of experience in that kind of situation. So Charlottesville was, because there are plenty of Confederate statues all over the place, but they chose Charlottesville because it's a soft target. Um, now, in order to have this kind of a rally and protest, you have to have a permit. So you go to City Hall where you apply for your permit. You get the application. You fill out your name and you state your purpose. You cannot write down as your purpose, I want to start a race war. <laughs> you will not get the permit, right? So, <laughs> right. It's not going through. So you've got to come up with a quasi-legitimate excuse. 
Um, I, you know, uh, my my great ancestors fought in the, in the Confederacy, and these statues are a tribute to their led to their legacy. I want to protest the removal. Okay, fine. Here's your permit. You know, so now you've got you've gotten papered. You've got credentials. Once you got those credentials, you go and do whatever you want to do. So that's what it was about. And yes, while there were people there to protest the removal of the statues, the main reason behind the bulk of the people was to start the race war. Why would you invite, well, first of all, why would you invite neo-Nazis? Neo-Nazis have no heritage in Charlottesville. Okay, look, Adolf Hitler, uh, the, the Civil War ended in 1865. 1865, Hitler wasn't even born. Nazism wasn't even around. So why are Nazis in Charlottesville? <laughs> they have no heritage there, right? That should be clue number one. You know, they're not there for, for any Robert E. Lee statue, you know? So next thing is, you want to honor your great, great ancestors? You don't even know them. But I understand that because we can honor people that we don't know from our past. That's, that's not a problem. But the people that you do know, you know your fathers, you know your grandfather. If you're lucky, you may know your great-grandfather. Many of these people, depending upon what age you are, many of these people fought in World War II against the Nazis. So how do you tell me that you're honoring your great-great-great ancestors when you are walking alongside the very people that your fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfather fought against. And they are wearing swastika armbands and flying swastika flags and saying, Zig Heil, Hi Hitler, and all this crap. You know, it wasn't about heritage. Right? Secondly, anybody who knows American history knows that there were plenty, thousands, of black people who fought in the Confederacy my ancestors fought in the Confederacy because slaves had to fight for their slave masters. And my, 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 my parents are from Virginia. Virginia was the seat of the Confederacy. That's where Robert E. Lee is from, Virginia. I was born in Chicago because my dad had a job there at the time. That's all. But so if, if would it not? And, and there were also Jewish people, Jewish people who fought in the Confederacy in the South. Because the, the Civil War was fought over slavery. The North wanted to end slavery. The South wanted to keep it because they were making free money off the backs of slaves. They were Jewish slave owners. They were white slave owners. All right. So they fought against, you know, the abolishment of slavery. If, if you wanted to, to and, and, the, and there are people who honor the, the Confederacy. There are even some black people who honor it. All right. If you want to honor it, why not invite some of the blacks who honor it invite some of the Jewish people from the South who honor it. Would, would that not add more credibility to your cause to keep the statues? If you have blacks and Jews and whites all saying, Hey, no, 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 leave the statue there. You know, we want it for, you know, for our heritage as well. But instead of inviting blacks and Jews to participate with you, you excluded them. So it was all about white supremacy, Right. So one of the scenes that day was these, um, these KKK members, they were not wearing their robes and hoods, they were in regular clothing, uh, were coming down the steps from a Confederate park. 
where a statue was. And there was a black guy at the bottom of the steps with a flamethrower, the improviser as a uh, aerosol can. He lit a match and he was, you know, flinging this flame at them. And they were trying to hit him with the Confederate flagpole. And the leader, the national leader of the Klan, had, had just come down the steps ahead of them, right before the guy lit the flame. And he turned around and he saw this black guy, you know, aiming this flame at some of his people. And he pulled out a gun and he pointed it at the head of the black guy and shouted, hey, nigger. And then he lowered the gun and fired it. And the bullet landed near the black person's foot in some gravel. And then the the, uh, leader turned and continued walking right past the Charlottesville police who were all standing right there. They walked like this. They watched the whole thing happen and did nothing, nothing. So um, I thought, you know, I saw the footage of this. I thought, you know, this is crazy. This is crazy. We have to do something. And everybody's blaming somebody, you know. You, know, you, you want to blame the black guy. Okay, let's blame him because he's trying to set people on fire. He should not have been doing that. He gets some blame. Fine. Let's blame the, the, the Klansmen who are trying to hit people with the uh, flagpole. They should have been doing that. They get some, some blame. We can blame the, uh, the, the, uh, the Klan leader for pulling out a gun and shooting it in public in a crowd. He definitely gets blamed. We can blame the police for not doing their job. They're standing there watching somebody pull out a gun and fire it, and they just stand there looking. They definitely get blamed because that's not what they're paid to do. Or maybe we should blame ourselves for allowing our country to come to this point in the 21st century. This does not belong in any century, let alone the 21st, right? But, you know, it does no good to sit around and blame you know, you blame me, I blame you, we blame that person. It just goes around and around and nothing gets accomplished. So rather than put my energy into blaming, I figure let's let's learn about each other and, and, and why all this happened. So I called that guy up. I said, look, man, you and I need to talk. Not Klansman to Black man, but man to man, American to American. Your Confederate history is just as much a part of my black history as my black history is a part of yours. It's all American history. Let's you and I get together and explore American history together. I talked to him on the phone for about 25 minutes. He said, okay. So we set a date. I drove to his house about an hour and a half from my house. And I I went there by myself, unarmed, no, no weapons, nothing. And I sat in his living room. His living room is covered with KKK stuff, um, Confederate stuff. I I sat on his couch, which was covered with a Confederate flag. And I sat there for two hours listening to him give me a, um, a lesson in American history for two hours. Now, he gave me the lesson from the Confederate perspective, of course. He got some things right. He got some things wrong. But I just sat back up. I just listened to him, you know, because I'm allowing him to be heard. I'm showing him that respect, right? I'm treating him fairly. So when he, you know, he, he and his fiance, Clans Lady, are there. And so he's, when he's finished, now it's my turn to talk. What did I do? 
First thing I did was I corrected him on what he got wrong, but I also commended him on what he got right. And then instead of giving him my lecture, I said, here's what I want to do. There's a new museum that opened up in Washington, D.C., the uh, Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture. I said, um, it's very hard to get tickets to, but I have a contact there. I can get some tickets. Let's, let's, let's the three of us, go down there and tour the museum together. You know, we'll pick a date. He said, okay. So I gave them directions to my house. They came down to my house. I got the tickets. We, we, we messed around here in my living room a little bit. I played the piano. He sang some songs. I put them in my car. And we went downtown to D.C. D.C. is 15 minutes from me. We toured the museum together. We looked at displays on slavery, on integration, segregation. Uh, we looked at little video clips on blacks in science, blacks in the arts, and education, and music, and medicine, all that kind of stuff. And um, at the, at the, you know, we were there for maybe two and a half hours. It's impossible to take in the whole museum in two and a half hours, but it was enough to, you know, get him started. And then we went outside, and I gave the Klan's lady my, uh, my, my cell phone camera, and I said, take a picture of, 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 of this guy and me. And I went and I stood over by the marquee of the museum. And he comes over totally unscripted and just hugs me and smiles. I got the picture. This is a, he, he's come, you know, this was less than a year since he pulled out that gun and said, hey, nigger, and shot it. And now he's hugging a black man. But it goes deeper than that because, you know, the, the Charlottesville was August 12th, 2017. This museum trip was, was at the end of June in 2018, so just a couple months less than a year. But it went deeper than that because now I've been working with this guy for a year, right? And um, he's going to marry that girl. And she is from Tennessee. So, of course, they, you know, they invite me to the wedding, which is crazy in itself. You know, a black guy coming to a Klan wedding? Come on, you know? But this shows you that this is learned behavior. What, what can be learned can be unlearned. You know, they had that much respect for me because I respected him. I did not respect what he stood for. I did not respect what he was saying. But I gave him the respect to say it. And I listened. I allowed him to be heard. You know, I treated him fairly. And now he's reciprocating. He valued my friendship. It went even deeper than that because her father, who's down in Tennessee, was too sick to come up to walk his daughter down the aisle and give her away. And rather than ask one of his trusted clan people who were coming down the steps, hitting people with Confederate flagpoles, they asked me if I would step in and walk her down the aisle. How, that is just ludicrous. And so I said, yeah. <laughs> so I did it, you know? And I got, I got pictures, I got video of it, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, so... People can't, this never, Julie, this never would have happened without dialogue, without conversation. And I've, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times. A missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. Nothing happens without dialogue, conversation. And the magic words that you said for me were, let's explore this together. Not, not let me tell you why I think you're wrong. And then you can tell me why you think I'm wrong. 
Let's explore this together. Let's sit down together and look at it from, from our places of commonality as opposed to our places of contrast. You, what you're doing is, back to what I said earlier, you're, you're not trying to attack their reality because you can't do that. You, they'll just defend it till, till doomsday. But they, they only know what they know, whether it's real or not. It's real to them. What you do is you offer them a different or better perception or perspective. And if they resonate with it, they will change their own reality. And an example that I like to give is, um, you know, let's say you have, let's say your son is seven or eight years old and he goes with his friend and his friend's parents or his school or whatever to a magic show. And, and he comes home, he tells you, he's just really excited about what he saw. He tells you that this magician on stage asked for a female volunteer from the audience and 50 women raised their hand. He picked out one in the, in the red top and asked her to come up on stage. And um, he asked her to climb inside this box and put her feet out that side of the hole and put her head out the hole on this side of the box. And so she did it. And the magician closed the lid and took a chainsaw and went right through the box. He cut, he cut your, your son is telling you, this man cut that woman in half. And you're like, well, no, son, he didn't. Yes, he did. I was there. I saw it. You weren't there. I saw it. You know, the saw went right through the box, came out through the bottom. You know, and then the magician, he took that one half of the box with the feet and he moved it over to the other side of the stage and took the, the half of the head and put it on that side of the stage. And then he walked over there and he talked to the head and the head of the woman talked back to him. You know, this is all real. And, and then he brought the two halves back together and he opened up the top and she came out and there was no blood. She was all back together. I saw it. Well, son, it's, it's an, no, it's not an illusion. I saw it, you know? So the more you attack what he knows, he saw. And he saw what he saw. He knows it's real, you know? And the more you attack it, the more he's going to defend it. So rather than attack his reality, because um, you know it's not real, if you give him a better perception, such as, is it possible Perhaps that the woman that you said in the red top that he called up out of the 50 women, just maybe she works for him. She knows the trick. Maybe he planted her in the audience and she travels with him to every, every stop he makes. Maybe it's his wife, you know, but she knows the trick and you just think she's part of the audience. And when she gets inside the box, there's already a pair of mannequin dummy legs on the floor of the box that are wearing the same stockings and same shoes that she has on. She just picks them up while she's in there and sticks them out the hole. And she brings her own legs up under her chest. So her whole body is on that side of the box. So when he cuts the box in half, there's nothing but dummy legs in that half. So he moves it over there and then he moves the half of the head, which is really her whole body, to this side. And then when he brings them back together, she pulls the legs out, leaves them on the floor of the box, and she climbs out. And then your son says, "Wow, I, I, I guess that would be the only way that could work." <laughs> so now you know. Now you you you've given him a better perception, and he changes his own reality. And that's always better if you can guide somebody to see in the light on their own, rather than you trying to compel them to believe what you want them to believe. 
Before I let you go today, I, I wanted to, I wanted to touch on the word courage on both sides. You know, there's the there's the courage to invite people to the table, and that takes courage. And for you, a, a level of courage that I find it hard to conceive of actually showing up to these rallies to try and initiate conversations. But flipping that over for a second, there's also it struck me in all of the stories that I had read that you have told me that there's courage in questioning your own worldview. You know, there's, there's courage in questioning a, a level of belief that you have had for your entire life. And, you know, there's a lot of highly educated people I know, myself included, that struggle with that some days, questioning our worldview. Do you believe, have you found that that is a muscle that we all have, that we're all capable of it? Or have you come across people where you think this just isn't, isn't going to work? Yeah, they're, they're, they're both. They're both. Uh, and, you know, and guess what? I mean, there'll be people, you know, that I've talked to, you know, that I've concluded they will go to their grave being hateful, violent, and racist. There's no changing them. And, and we all know people like that. Um, but even if people like that are willing to sit down and have that conversation, there is that opportunity. We don't, we don't give up on them. There is that opportunity to plant that seed. And hopefully we can come back and nurture that seed, pour water on it, you know, feed it whatever, make it bloom, make it grow. Um, but some, some are going to go to their grave being like that, and others will, will catch on. And I've had, I've had surprises where people, you know, who are like that, you know, did eventually change. There, there's no set time, you know, there's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no set time as to, you know, well, how long does it take, Daryl, for a Klansman or Nazi to change? <laughs> you can't answer that question. You know, you know, Nazis and Klan people—they're not stamped out of a standard cookie cutter. You know, there's, there's no time frame. They don't punch a clock. Is it getting easier or harder to have these conversations? I think easier. Um, I think, and pe- people will look at me like I'm crazy when I say this, but I think right now is the very best time in our lives. Right now, despite the coronavirus, despite all the rioting. The 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 uh, I, I I say lynching, the lynching of George Floyd, despite the Capitol insurrection and all that. Why? Because for too long we have um, ignored a lot of these things. We you know we don't want to have these conversations about race. We sweep it under the carpet, lock it in the closet, turn a blind eye to it. Now it's in our face. It's in our face. We have to address it. If we had if we had been proactive. Decades ago, we would not be facing this today. So now we can identify it. We know who the players are. We know what they want. And it's time for us to be proactive and start addressing it, no longer being reactive. And also this, if if we pinpoint, let's say, the start of the civil rights movement, let's say it was um, 1955 with our Rosa Parks and on through 1968 with Dr. King. If we look at the protesters, the marchers, what did the powers that be see? Powers that be is a polite way of saying the white establishment. What did they see? They saw an ocean of black people marching, protesting, boycotting, having sit-ins with a smattering of white people mixed in. There have always been some white people who got it and wanted to participate and join us in our cause. So they saw an ocean of black people with a small smattering of white people. So 
they just shut us down. They plugged the ears. They didn't want to hear what we had to say. Those white people were, were race traders and sellouts and whatever else, according to them. And they just shut things down. The pages of progress turned very slowly. They turned, but they turned very slowly. Now, fast forward from yesteryear to last year in, in the wake of the George Floyd lynching. Now, what did the powers that be see? They saw an ocean of black people and an ocean of white people marching together, protesting together, that many. We've never seen that before. And as a result, the pages of progress turned a lot faster. Okay, in the past, if, if a police officer were to be charged for what Derek Chauvin did, it would take months, maybe even a year, and then it would just fall by the wayside. He'd be found not guilty, not to drop the charges, done. Today, cops are being charged and fired like that for that kind of behavior. Plus, while a lot of these protests were geared towards police all across the country, there was a large, the largest ripple effect that we've ever seen. A lot of other things began changing. Um, NASCAR banned use of the Confederate battle flag. NASCAR was ground zero for, the, for that flag. Uh, the, the state of Mississippi, which historically has been one of the most racist states in our country, it has part of the Confederate flag in its, in its main flag body. They have elected to remove that portion of their flag. Mississippi, right? Um, food labels like Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, changing the, the, the stereotypical black people care caricatures on the labels. You know, legislation being passed to take down Confederate statues, to, to rename buildings named after slave owners. We've never seen, seen things happen that fast. What is the difference? Why is that happening? I say it's because of the collective voice. Blacks and whites, that many, working together. Now the powers that be, they, can't, they have to unplug their ears or, or put their hearing aids on so, that, so they can hear what's going on. Because there are more people that look like them participating. And so things are changing a lot faster. And that's what we need to do. We need to cultivate people together from different walks of life. Like, I, I spoke at the, at the Women's March for two years in a row. And like I told them, you know, it's fine to have all these women together, but they're never going to achieve anything until they get men on their side. You know, black people are not going to succeed until you get white people working with you. You, you have to invite the other to participate. And when, and when you see it collectively, that's when things happen. I love your language there about the other. I feel like, you know, if you had to nail it down into the, the genesis of, of how of that feeling it is of the other, whether it's within your family, whether it's a conversation that isn't being had in your family, there's the, always the other, right? The other person that's making it difficult, the other person who's, you know, not going to shift, the other person who's wrong. But my final question for you today, and let's just pick up on that, what language of the other, if, if there's anybody out there that's listening that has someone who they would consider to be the other in their home or who's trying to bring someone who's considered the other into their home, what's the one piece of guidance you would give them as to how to start and have that conversation successfully? I would say, I would say execute those five principles. Be loving. Be respectful, 
allow somebody to be heard. If you want to be heard, then you have to allow others to be heard. Uh, treat people fairly and realize that, you know, they want the same thing that you want at the end of the day. And there are, you know, it's, it's okay to disagree with people, but you can get these things a lot faster for both of you if you work together to get them for the common goal. F find your common humanity. Find your common, because you know, if you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, you're going to find something in common. And, and, and the distance between you is going to narrow. You spend another five minutes, you're going to find even more. And now you're in, in a relationship position. And you keep on talking, the gap narrows even more, and you're heading towards a friendship. And by the time you get there, you have found that you have more in common than you do in contrast. And the trivial things that you have in contrast, such as skin color, or whether you worship at a mosque, a temple, a church, or a synagogue, begin to matter less and less. And you begin wondering, why did I even dislike that person in the first place? You know, my, I, I, I want to share with you my, my very favorite quote of all time. And it's by Mark Twain, the author. And Mark is called the travel quote. And Mark Twain said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so true. You know, and we have, un unlike when I was when I was growing up, we didn't, uh, and you as well, we didn't have the internet. You know, if we want to to, to learn about something, if if our parents could not afford a set of encyclopedias, we had to physically leave our house and go to the library and look stuff up, and then come home and write our book report or whatever for school. Um, today we got Google. You know, not only on our computers but on our cell phone. Um, we we can learn things about other countries off the internet. We don't you know, we don't necessarily have to go there. It's nice if we can travel there if we can afford it or whatever. But uh, but we can also travel there virtually and take a tour and learn things from from the comfort of our own home. We have these tools that can educate us. We need to use them. We need to use them because there's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. Ignorance can be cured. Stupidity cannot. And we all are ignorant to a certain degree, but we can alleviate that ignorance by, by through exposure and education. Daryl, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. 
thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.